Welcome to week nine of Germ Syllabus. This week's theme is encryption and well-being. And I'm really looking forward to a conversation about how privacy and trust and safety belong together. I'm so happy to welcome Rihanna Pfefferkorn, who is an attorney and an encryption policy researcher at the Stanford Internet Observatory, and also one of Germ Network's advisors. So welcome, Rihanna. Thank you. Thank you. I want to share a few thoughts to kick us off and just kind of give some framing to this conversation with Rihanna for folks that aren't familiar with these topics or aren't familiar with germ. So as many of you know, Germ Network, our small startup that is hosting this space, is social media built to empower you, starting with a secure messenger designed for Gen Z. And end-to-end encrypted messaging has been core to our vision and our roadmap since we first started working on this company, since I first started thinking about it. I am Tessa Brown. You can also follow me on Twitter at Tessa La Professa. And I was a digital literacy expert at Stanford before I left to found this company. And my co-founder, Brett, who is an awesome UX designer and community builder, is here as well. And I always like to remind folks, this series is called Germ Syllabus, and Germ Syllabus is really a course. All of the materials that I discuss throughout this series are up in our Discord. Um, The link to our Discord is in our bio. I just wanted to summarize a little bit what we've been chatting about all fall and some of the issues that are on my mind tonight before I open it up to Rihanna and later to any of you all that are listening. All, I've been thinking of it as a season, all season, we have talked about centering marginalized people and especially women of color in our conceptions of tech and tech ethics. We've been thinking about the challenges of putting trust and safety first and the ways that business models shape how we pursue our missions. These themes all came up with our last two guests. Last week, we had CTO of Trust Lab, Shankar Ponikanti who talked about the technical work of content moderation. And the week before, we hosted Jane M., who researches and designs consensual platforms as a PhD student at the University of Michigan. And as I'm sure we're going to talk about tonight, the last few weeks have also taken place on what is now Elon's Twitter, which is a place where hate speech against LGBTQ people, people of color has been skyrocketing. White supremacists who have been banned for years are getting their accounts reactivated. And Musk is enabling some of the people that I consider some of the most bad faith actors really in me- our media ecosystem to have access to Twitter's tools and even internal communications and data. So it's really an intense night to be talking to Rihanna, who I know as a very scrupulous policy advocate. After watching this platform that a lot of us love so much, I really have loved my time on Twitter, um, just get totally trashed over the last month. I know one of the things privacy-minded folks have been thinking about lately is our Twitter direct messages, because many of us have wanted our DMs to be end-to-end encrypted for a while now. And I think we're kind of in a worst case scenario right now where there might literally be a group of people on Market Street um, reading Twitter users' DMs. To me, that seems 
probable. I want to take a moment for folks listening who are not familiar end to end and just to just define end to end encryption in a pretty high level general way. End to end encryption is a form of encryption, a form of protecting data in which data can only be accessed by the person who sends something and the person who receives it right from one end to the other end. It's encrypted. So it can't be decrypted in transit by any of the many computers or nodes or servers that touch your data or that move it around the world. Um, So Signal, iMessage, and WhatsApp are all end-to-end encrypted messengers. But even among those, only Signal actually encrypts your metadata, meaning it doesn't even know who you're talking to or when you're talking to them or when you even log into Signal. In our Discord, in Germ's Discord, I have posted a group of articles that are kind of framing our conversation this week, and I just wanted to mention what some of them are. Um, I pulled a report from Amnesty International from back in 2016 about why end-to-end encryption is important for human rights and for freedom of speech. I have a paper that Rihanna wrote that I want to talk about and hear about more tonight about how content moderation can work in end-to-end encrypted systems. And I also posted a few pieces literally from the last week because we had a bunch of big announcements specifically from Apple about them extending end-to-end encryption from just iMessages to now iCloud backups, also Notes, and some other services as well. They also walked back their plan to scan our photos for CSAM or child sexual abuse material. Um, And I'm looking forward to talking to Rihanna about that because some child safety advocates have been really staunch opponents of end-to-end encryption, but yet there's others who think more about different kinds of marginalization who have really been supporters of privacy and end-to-end encryption, as Amnesty International attests. And just to sum up, you know, here at Germ, we strongly believe that end-to-end encryption is the future and that we need to develop encrypted tech alongside innovative trust and safety mechanisms. So I'm so glad we have Rihanna in our corner while we are working on that. So let's, let's bring you in. Um, Welcome. Thank you. So I wanted to just start by giving you a chance to introduce yourself, introduce your work a little bit. And, you know, specifically, how did your work come to focus so much on encryption policy? So, um, Thanks for your excellent introduction. I am a research scholar at the Stanford Internet Observatory. The Internet Observatory studies um, online abuse, trust and safety issues. A lot of my colleagues work on mis and disinformation issues, uh, various types of uh, online influence uh, operations, especially by uh, sometimes sometimes domestic, but usually foreign uh, actors or or groups of actors. Um, My work has been focusing on encryption policy since I came to Stanford seven years ago on what was supposed to be a one-year fellowship to study um, encryption, the the then nascent newest round of the long-running crypto wars, which have been going on on and off since the 1990s, so like a solid quarter of a century at this point. And when I came to Stanford in the fall of 2015, nobody really, like the encryption debate wasn't really on very many people's minds. A lot of 
people I think didn't necessarily know what this was like Apple and Google had already re-engineered their phones so that they would no longer be able to unlock phones by law enforcement uh, because of the device encryption for those phones. But um, WhatsApp had not yet added the signal protocol into its messaging uh, uh, system. So there was still like sort of early days for the latest round of the, the crypto wars. And then like a few months after I got to Stanford, the Apple versus FBI dispute over the San Bernardino shooter's iPhone happened and suddenly everybody knew about the encryption debate and about this uh, this constant tug of war among competing equities um, for uh, law enforcement um, on on the one hand and you know in the in the online platforms context for trust and safety and on the other a lot of these considerations around personal privacy around freedom of expression other values so I came to this out of being at a large law firm where I worked on a lot of consumer privacy matters uh, internet law matters. Um, out of a long-standing interest ever since going to law school, actually years before as a motivator to go to law school, of the interest in specifically the intersection between civil liberties and technology law. Um, you can blame being born and raised in the Bay Area and thus being exposed to the Electronic Frontier Foundation as early as you know 2002 and volunteering with them there um, and sort of seeing this world of like digital rights advocacy uh, grow and flourish from... Uh, that point in time to now has been has been really fascinating as um, you know connecting literally every part of human society to the internet has become ever more uh, pervasive. And it's been fascinating to see how the debate around encryption has grown and shifted over time. Um, what may drive it in different parts of the world? Because what we what we talk about and what the concerns are in the United States for why encryption matters. Um, or you know why there should be additional means for uh, law enforcement to access the plain text of encrypted data is not necessarily the same as that what that debate plays out to be in India, in um, uh, in the UK, in the EU. Um, different parts of the world have different uh, equities and different motivations for um, trying to argue against strong encryption that does not have some sort of mechanism built in by which either the provider of an encrypted system, um, such as a messaging platform or a, or a government, could access uh, somebody's data. So my research has grown into other areas around trust and safety, around um, other means of government access to data. Um, sometimes when there's a lull in the U.S. crypto debate, it, it leaves room for uh for doing other research. And we've seen the confluence of concerns around how to do trust and safety in an increasingly more ubiquitously uh, encrypted world, um, while also recognizing the benefits of strong cybersecurity against a background of uh, you know, large scale uh, cyber attacks, worries about uh, you know, covert espionage or, or information collection by uh, countries that are adversarial to the United States. Um, and so, you know, the, the full complexity of this debate, I think, is one that um, folks like you and me who are soaking in this all the time, and some of the listeners here uh, may be well familiar with, but for a lot of people, you know, I suspect that to this day, if you ask the average person on the street, notwithstanding the fact that there is a lot more awareness of, the, of encryption as an issue, why people use any given app or any given service is it's probably not because of the security or privacy properties. They may or may not have any idea what encryption is. 
it is much more likely to be is it an affordable price point? Does it allow me to do the things I want to do? Are the people I want to talk to there, you know, for the network effects uh, uh, functionality of, of any given app? And so, you know, I think we still have a lot of uh, listening to do in terms of what users want out of the services they have or what they want in terms of keeping their data private and secure, what privacy means to them. Um, and it's, it's exciting to see something that is always, always relevant and that touches so many different aspects of, of society. Um, but it can be kind of challenging as well over mm-hmm. time. <laughs> can I ask, you know, I'm really interested in the, I think of you, let me know if this is wrong, but I think of you as a civil liberties lawyer. And, you know, so you refer to like the crypto debates and the crypto wars and it does really seem like um, it is a lot of the pressure is from law enforcement, right? They want access to pursue bad actors and, pers- you know, get gain access to their data. You mentioned the San Bernardino shooter from several years back. Um, how does like the right to privacy fit into kind of civil liberties frameworks? Because I think I know that's something that I really want to do at germ and leading germ is to kind of make privacy feel a little bit mundane again. Like it is a human right that we all should have access to every day. Um, Was privacy something that you were always plugged into before encryption per se? I think it was definitely one of my interests along with like speech rights the thing that I've always been more concerned about when it comes to privacy is I've always been much more concerned about privacy intrusions by the state as opposed to privacy intrusions by private actors. And my concern about like when can a private actor such as you know the provider of the services we use access our data has been much more about like what are the intersections where that data collection is then accessible to governments because, you know, as the saying goes, like the government has a monopoly on the use of force, like Twitter can put you in Twitter jail, but they can't put you in real jail. Um, Only the government can do that. Um, So while there are certainly, you know, physical safety and security ramifications of, uh, you know, privacy or the lack thereof um, with regard to, you know, the actions of corporations, like nevertheless, my ultimate concern is always like, is this, is, is this privacy intrusion something that can be leveraged or this data collection leveraged by governments to, to be harmful to somebody? And I will admit, like, this comes from a place of bias where, like, before I came to Stanford, I was an attorney who was representing a lot of major tech companies, um, including Twitter, um, including Google, including a lot of, of, of companies who do occasionally get critiqued for their privacy practices. And so to the extent that I try and sort of have more concern about government, you know, privacy intrusions over corporate intrusions, you can take that with a grain of salt. I'm like, well, she used to be a big tech company lawyer. That's fine. Um, nevertheless, I do think the fact that Elon Musk can't put me in prison um, Mark Zuckerberg can't put me in prison is, is, is a big motivator for thinking about the importance of encryption because I see encryption as a way of increasing the distance between the individual and the state uh, and making the individual less legible to the state. Interesting. Where there's often this kind of 
information is power and therefore power differences are information differences. And so to the extent that the state can learn a lot of information about us, but we have less lesser ability to learn information about the state, then that is a power dynamic between us and the state. And I see the increasing ubiquitous availability of strong encryption as a way of restoring a little bit of that, um, you know, hiding ourselves from the prying eyes of the state and making ourselves less legible in, in a quite literal way in terms of like encrypted data being a bunch of, of gobbledygook uh, to, to the outside viewer. Um, we have, you know, means of, of making the state more legible to us through uh, sunshine laws, through public records acts, et cetera. But um, I think that this is one of the best tools that has been yet developed to just allow people to maintain the right to be let alone, as, as the right to privacy has often been phrased, at a point in time where there is such a lot of information that is collected about us, whether we realize it or not, whether we have consciously assented to it or not, um, in part because of you know, the, the proliferation of all the services that I used to represent like as, as a lawyer and all the ones that keep me looking at my phone for according to the you know, built-in mm -hmm. uh, function up to seven hours a day, which is not, not healthy at all. Um, but that, that, that's there. how I think of it. I think of, I think of encryption as affecting a power dynamic. Mm. I really appreciate that. And I think just listening to you speak, you know, any data that's available to anyone is eventually available to the government. So I see your work and just from speaking with you, you know, you're very attentive to like the granularity of what is collected, what is stored and what is ultimately accessible to anyone. I think listening to you now, I'm hearing that your sort of ultimate concern is like all the way up to governments, which is where, you know, folks really can be endangered if they're dissidents or, you know, doing things that are now illegal in the United States, like getting an abortion in half of our country. But um, I know for me, I'm also, I'm also really concerned with interpersonal privacy and even the stories that we've heard of violations of interpersonal privacy that happen, you know, on the corporate level. Like I remember when all the Uber kind of files were coming out, there were stories of Uber employees all having access to God mode and not just stalking you know, journalists in their cars, but also individuals stalking ex-girlfriends um, and things like that. And so just really, and you know, it's been interesting talking to our potential users. We've been doing a ton of customer discovery interviews with Gen Z and millennials, like 18 to 35 year olds or so. And it's been interesting learning, you know, what matters to them and what makes them feel safe online. And it's kind of following what you're talking about, which is that a lot of them are not thinking about privacy in terms of the way that, you know, a whistleblower or a dissident might. But, you know, even thinking about some of the announcements that Apple just rolled out, like, they're very concerned with hyper-targeting. They're very concerned with impersonation. And so I know for me, I'm getting more keyed into the ways that end-to-end -end encryption is part of a suite of tools that can work together um, to help people feel safe. And we want the technology there to make sure that their information, you know, really, really is safe. But that's not always what folks are kind of keyed into at the beginning. 
I know I've been reflecting this week with Apple's announcement about um, encrypting notes. You know, I'm a bit of a media scholar. I used to teach about hip hop. And in my notes app a few years ago, I started noticing that my anytime I would mention an artist, it would get underlined and hyperlinked into the app store. And that's the kind of thing that they could have not end-to-end encrypted my notes and just not done that. But there's a feeling of violation and there's a feeling of boundary violation that I feel in that moment that just helps me reflect on like, what does it mean to feel safe? What does it mean to feel that your boundaries are respected on your device and online? And then how can end-to-end encryption put some like real tech you know, power behind it and not just having it be a feeling, but having it be really true. Yeah. And I think one of the hardest questions facing the providers of encrypted products, encrypted services is how do you teach the people using it to have an accurate mental model of the privacy and security properties of your service? Because this is something that, you know, I don't know that everybody who uses um, uh, uses Apple products that uses iCloud would have an accurate mental model of which categories of data are already end-to-end encrypted in iCloud because some of them are. But even finding that information out was like an uphill slog. Like a friend of mine at Harvard who was writing up um, in the immediate aftermath of the Dobbs decision was writing up something about period tracker apps, other health tracking apps. Um, and how that data might potentially fall into the hands of, of, of law enforcement in a post-row uh, world was trying to figure out, okay, like what information is already, like what health data, et cetera, does Apple already encrypt end-to-end? And they had a hard time figuring it out. So if a Harvard Law-trained scholar at Harvard Law School yes. is having a difficult time parsing your public-facing statements about what is already there, and you know that's just on top of existing sort of mental models or folk beliefs about how different apps work, like that creates room for a lot of mischief because it's not just important for people to feel safe and to feel that their activities are private or secure. It also has to accurately reflect what is actually going on. Yeah. Um, and there's just so, you know, this is something that is very dangerous for people if, if something does not behave the way that they think it does and the way it actually behaves is less secure, less private, more, you know, data collection, more, you know, accessibility to the state than they expected it would, that can be a big problem. On the flip side, I viewed, you know, misunderstandings or misconfigurations or not having your settings be where you thought they were as being one of the safety valves in the encryption debate um, where the, 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 the counterbalance is, is, is law enforcement pushing for greater access to data to the extent that people making very human mistakes enables digital evidence collection, that might be one way. And, you know, we can talk about like, you know, the carceral state or, you know, all of the stuff that I'm sure you would love to talk about in terms of like prison abolition, et cetera. Like it becomes a way for law enforcement to be able to get the information that they want, notwithstanding the fact that these services are available because you will slip through the cracks or just don't get it right. But when what the law that is being enforced is an anti-abortion law or when it's a law against being gay or practicing a particular religion in some other country, then misunderstandings of privacy and security properties of the app resources we use is very dangerous. And so I think it is incumbent upon 
and the offeror of these services to do a really good, clear job of explaining at every turn and doing good user education so that people know how these things work and how they do not work so that expectation and reality are in alignment because otherwise it is a, a rude surprise. And I think we've all been experiencing that rude surprise, you know, more and more over the last 10 years. I think a lot of our assumptions, I mean, it's like that famous quote from Mark Zuckerberg, supposedly like a year or two into Facebook, where he was like, do you want to know the names and phone numbers and addresses of 4,000 Harvard undergrads? And someone was like, why do you have that? And he said, they just sent it to me, fucking idiots. Um you know, there's this been kind of this loss of innocence, I think, for all of us about how much data these platforms really do collect and how much of our data is not private that we kind of assumed were private. We've had lots of interesting interview conversations with folks about, you know, what are your DMs? Are they, there's a lot of assumption that a DM is really direct and that no one can read it. People almost assume that there's such a thing as end-to-end encryption, maybe even just by policy design, but there's really not, you know, and all of your messages are getting harvested and processed into this feedback loop of mostly advertisements. Um, What I really want to ask you about, because I see that we have a bunch of people here, so I want to make sure that we have like lots of time for questions and maybe that will bring us more into the present moment. But I was hoping that you could share a little bit about your article and some of your key findings from your piece about content oblivious moderation, because just to kind of frame it in these crypto debates, you know, and people say this to me a lot when I come to them with, you know, I want to build the secure messenger. I think the, I want to say the right has been very successful in creating a narrative that um, end-to-end encryption is hostile to public safety and that it's just, you know, a tool of bad actors. And I know some, a reason I really wanted you on our team and in our corner is to really pull that debate back and really be part of the camp, you know, which you are already and we are too. And now we can do it together a little bit more of saying privacy is a human right. We all have a right to privacy. We have a right to privacy in our homes, in our relationships and in our digital worlds as well. And what I love about your article is that it really shows that you don't have to live in an environment of constant automated surveillance to create digital trust. Um, So I was hoping you could share a little bit more with us about that research that you did. Sure. So the article I published in the Journal of Online Trust and Safety, which my colleagues at Stanford launched last year and which has been going gangbusters ever since. Um, The article is uh, Content Oblivious Trust and Safety Techniques, and it is empirical research uh, for, you know, somebody who is a a legal scholar who took one look at empirical research, did this this one time, and I have run screaming back to just like writing bloviating law review articles since then. But um, it was an interesting excursion into the world of actual actual empirical data. So I did a a survey to pull the providers of various types of online services, including but by no means limited to encrypted messaging apps about... um, their trust and safety practices, where the idea I had going into this was seeing the confluence of discussions about content moderation and trust and safety programs 
meet up with with um, discussions about encryption as identity encryption becomes more ever more prevalent. Um, so, okay, how do you do trust and safety effectively in end-to-end encrypted environments? That's something that at the Internet Observatory at Stanford, we'd had a whole series of events and workshops uh, about over the last few years. Um, and a misunderstanding that I kept seeing come up in these debates is what seemed to be an assumption that the only way to do trust and safety is that you have to have content analysis capabilities where the whoever is providing the service has the capability at will to access the contents of users files and communications and data and to be able to scan those to look for abusive content and that's simply not true it has been not true for many many years because trust and safety uh, while it is a rapidly uh, you know professionalizing and, and growing field has been around for as long as there have been the need to fight spam, to do anti-fraud, et cetera, on various services. And so because there is a wide swath of what I call content oblivious trust and safety techniques, where you don't have to have programmatic at-will access to content to do trust and safety, I wanted to just survey service providers about like what they do. And I asked them about metadata analysis, which has its own privacy uh, concerns. I asked them about automated content scanning so keyword filtering, uh, looking for um, uh, hashes of images that are in a database of verboten imagery. Um, and I also asked about user reporting, where a user could initiate a report of abusive content to the service. And I class that as being content oblivious rather than content dependent, because it's not that the, the service is able to, pro to find that content at will, it's because the user has reported it to the service, um, that it comes to the, the service's attention. And what I found was when I asked which of these uh, techniques do the providers included in the survey deem most useful for detecting various types of abuse, and I asked about 12 different kinds of abuse, ranging from child sexual abuse imagery to child sexual exploitation, such as enticement or grooming, to hate speech, to self-harm, et cetera. Um, I found that by and large, content oblivious techniques were deemed to be as or more effective across most categories of abuse that I asked about um, than automated content scanning, um, with the sole exception of child sex abuse imagery. Um, a notable exception there where um, content scanning is still considered to be the most useful technique for abuse detection. But for all these other categories, um, especially for things like hate speech that may be extremely context dependent, extremely human judgment dependent, um, it was user reporting that was typically deemed to be the most useful means of detecting um, abuse rather than these automated tools. Um, and that was, I think, a really interesting finding because a lot of the proposals that we have seen, mostly in other countries from regulators in, in places like India, Canada, uh, various parts of the EU and the UK, have had these broad brushstrokes of saying, we're going to propose um, uh, mandating uh, uh, scanning and filtering for, uh, for all content that gets uploaded to a service to look for the bad stuff, where the bad stuff is not just the thing that I found that on the content scanning still works well for, which is child sex abuse imagery, um, but other categories, hate speech, for example. Um, and the importance of these findings is that it shows that we can't treat uh, all trust and safety, all abuse problems being the same problem 
as child sex abuse imagery. It's not. It's that's a very uh, sweet, generous problem compared to all these other categories of, of abuse. And we can't expect the impact of turning on default end-to-end encryption to affect all ca- types of abuse and to affect a trust and safety program uh, uniformly, because um, while turning on end-to-end encryption will impede automated content analysis, uh, because you know, once you encrypt the contents end-to-end, uh, you, you can't peer into it from the outside. But end-to-end encryption does not impede uh, metadata analysis, since as you mentioned earlier, most, uh, most services uh, typically do not in- encrypt metadata, and it doesn't impede user reporting. It's still possible and feasible and you know, already exists to do user reporting from within an end-to-end encrypted environment and be able to report a particular snippet of a conversation, for example, uh, to, to the service provider to report abuse. So I think the, the article has been pretty well received so far in just showing that there are other means out there besides automated content scanning to try and do trust and safety and to emphasize how distinct a lot of the problems in online abuse and content moderation and trust and safety can be where they just aren't all the same animal. A lot of them are are very different. And so the mitigations and interventions that are needed are necessarily going to be different as well. And my hope is that it serves as like some actual like empirical data to push back against these regulatory proposals to say we have to scan everything, uh, we have to filter everything, um, and everything should be built around the assumption that all types of abuse online look exactly like one part of the child safety problem, which itself is not even a uniform uh, problem as, as shown by the data in, in the article. So at a, at a time when public safety and especially child safety are used as um, what has so far been one of the more effective rationales for uh-huh. undermining encryption, my hope is that having this, you know, this, this set of data and this article help to push back on that and i'll mention by the way when when you when you characterize the public safety rationale as being a a talking point on the right it isn't it is something that we have seen equally across the political spectrum several of the bills that have been introduced in the united states congress or that were at least drafted by members of congress um, over the last several years since the san bernardino matter um, between apple and the fbi in early 2016 um, have been drafted or co-sponsored by democrats my hope, you know, that the silver lining to losing my constitutional right to control my own goddamn body um, is that we can take um, the oh, encryption Lord. issue. Yeah, to, that we can take the encryption issue to Democratic lawmakers who are wavering in their support for encryption or view it as a bad thing because they view encryption as impeding law enforcement and say, this is the law enforcement that encryption impedes. Is yes. Enforcing anti-abortion laws against people who, you know, this used to be a constitutional right. Overnight, it went from a constitutional right to a crime. So when you talk about encryption impeding investigation of crimes, this is now what you are talking about. It's something that was a constitutional right until five minutes ago. I don't know whether that is something that will get through to the Democratic lawmakers who have proposed anti-encryption bills in the past, but it is just to, to say that the public safety rationale is by no means the sole province of, of conservative lawmakers. It's something that we hear from across the board. And it is an important consideration to take into account when talking about, you know, what are the benefits? What is the upside? What, what is the expected downside 
of weakening encryption for cybersecurity, for personal safety, for public safety, um, you know, for national security, for economics, um, and to try and show that like the expected upside of weakening it, and this is something else I think the data show from my article, the expected upside might not be all that you think it's it's going to be, whereas we can predict what the downside would look like and it's not pretty. Um, mm-hmm. we, we don't want to, I think, go back to a world where it was as easy to just steal somebody's phone off the counter at the cafe while they're in the bathroom and immediately have access to the trove of all of their accounts that are connected to it, all the data that they store on their banking, whatever. We have strong device encryption now to try and fend that off. Um, I don't think we do want to go back to a world where it would be as easy for interlopers to eavesdrop upon a private conversation. And we now have end-to-end encryption to try to fend that off. Even going to our, our discussion of like corporate surveillance and consumer privacy, one of the shifts that we have seen by companies that have strengthened their device encryption or that have added end-to-end encryption by default for their services is that they are now including themselves in the threat model for their users. And this is something that Apple mm. has done by adding um, the option to end, they have announced that they are going to roll out the option to end and encrypt your iCloud backups. Right. Is that, you know, companies like Apple or like Meta, you know, or et cetera, see themselves, whether in their own official capacity or rogue employees within them as, you know, going back to your Uber example, for example, as, as potential attackers for their own users. And so by removing their own ability to see into users' files and communications, they are trying to enhance user privacy in a way that seems to break the brains of regulators who get mad at big tech. Like they're (laughs) mad at big tech for violating people's privacy. And then so they're like, yeah, okay, we should like help <laughs> do something more to protect user safety, do something more to respect users' privacy better. And so you see tech companies that respond like, okay, great, we're encrypting more stuff. And regulators like, wait, no, 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 not like that. But oh not God. to but us. Yeah, we want to be able to see everything. We never did anything wrong. We're mad at you wrong. for violating people's privacy, and we're mad at you for encrypting things so that you have less ability to violate your users' privacy. It's it's a little hard to to reconcile these these two things. I have so many comments and follow-ups, et cetera. But I want to let folks that are listeners um, ask questions and share comments as well. We always have such smart people in this chat. And I want to just make a couple announcements about that first. Um, This space is being recorded. So if you speak, you'll be part of our recording and it will be available here on Twitter for 30 days. And we also are going to release this as a podcast. Um, So, you know, you're welcome to not say your name or anything like that. But if you do speak, your audio will be preserved and circulated. So please just bear that in mind. Um, And also, you know, the convo continues in our Discord. So if you didn't hear me say that before, please do join us on Discord as well. But if anyone would like to ask Rihanna a question, share um, a comment, Of course, also, if you're not respectful, we'll also kick you out. Um, That's kind of the TLDR of our content moderation. Filing their their free speech. (laughs) I don't care. Um, No, it's not. It's our space, right? Et cetera. You're better at saying that than me. Um, But folks, if you do want to say something or ask Rihanna something before I keep peppering her with questions, um, please 
there should be a little button for you somewhere where you can request to speak or raise your hand or flutter a little emoji reaction at us. Because we're both people who teach or have taught. We could talk basically forever and listen to the sounds of our own voices. We can talk. And I even had something that I wanted to respond to what you were just saying, but I, I mean, so many things that you're saying, I just hope germ can do, you know, so much about being transparent with our users, being really clear about what we have access to and what we don't as and why, I mean, it really is a paradigm shift. Um, I'm also thinking about a guest that we had last week, Shankar Ponikanti, who's the CTO of Trust Lab, and they make um, content moderation tools, kind of plugins, not exactly plugins, but tools that third parties can use to moderate their own content. And he was also talking about CSAM and, you know, the kind of almost impossibility of a lot of their products are AI driven. But you can't even, like, it's illegal to train models. Like, you can't even have that data to be training your models. It all has to be done, you probably know more about this than me, within kind of federally supervised, like, contexts. And there's specific projects and repositories and hashes that have processed, you know, child sexual abuse images under kind of federal supervision, because you can't just have that data in your training model. And then he was also mentioning the kind of creepiness of the fact that, and I thought about this a lot, you know, when we're so obsessed with kind of finding that material, we're creating technological systems. This is almost more of an epistemological anxiety, but we're creating these technological systems that are populated with you know, the most horrific abuse in our society. And that's what we're spending so much time and energy on. I mean, I think for me, just in my broader politics, I'm really interested in being just very clear eyed about the fact that, you know, this epidemic of this abusive imagery is not a technical problem. It's a social problem that we're having, you know, so much abuse in our society that there's all these images just being created. I know something that really freaked me out maybe a year ago when Facebook started foisting reels into my Instagram feed all the time was I would get reels of child dance videos because I watch a lot of dance videos. And if you go to, like if I would click on one of these dance videos profiles, it would be some girl in some other country with like 40 followers. And right there is the, you know, button to message her. And I just saw Facebook in the last couple weeks saying that part of their new child protection um, design was that they were going to make it hard. They're going to use more age verification and you can't message someone that's a certain age. And I just find myself thinking if it's so easy to scan a picture and tell that it's a child, why would you ever recommend a child's video into my feed, a stranger, like ever? Like, I never want to see that, you know? So it's so much beyond just end-to-end encryption. And I think there's so many bigger questions that have to be integrated with these. It's, it's discoverability, it's, you know, reach and amplification. Like, trust and safety is such a huge, sprawling problem 
And, you know, you've hit the nail on the head of like, why is, is, is this service recommending to me somebody who doesn't know this child like these videos? One of the things that I think is an interesting question about end-end encrypted products, and, and especially like Apple's announcement that they're going to allow people to opt in to um, uh, what they call advanced data protection to end-to-end encrypt your iCloud backups, is how it will interact with laws that are either enacted, like in California, or proposed and in the works or going to come into effect um, that would require online service providers to set their privacy settings to the most privacy protective setting by default for accounts Mm. that they believe are children. Well, this new announcement by Apple of end-to-end encrypted backups it expressly says in their documentation that child user accounts are not eligible for opting into this at all. Um, and even if they were, like, if this is an opt-in uh, uh, feature, hmm. which there are very good reasons for, you know, account recovery and just usability purposes to not have it be opted in by default for everybody and have that be an opt-out model. But even if child accounts were eligible, which they're not, and even if if it was opt-in, how does that interact with these coming legal obligations to add particular protections for child users and have them opt in by default to the strongest, most privacy protective settings? And then what does that do with regard to what I was talking about earlier, this tension about like, okay, if we're protecting uh, child users or just all users' privacy, by adding more encryption and encrypting more things, where that comes into tension with the trust and safety and law enforcement uh, goals that law enforcement, that you know, Congress often seems to just expect that like the wizards will magically be able to do both at the same time. Like, what will happen once these default privacy settings start running into concerns about preserving visibility into um, uh, what 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 children are being exposed to online? Who is contacting them? What kind you know? What asks are they making of them, etc. So that's not something that I have seen a lot of discussion about. But it's one of the things bumping around in my head is how are these these this inverting the default to more privacy protection for children going to interact with things like the new Apple uh, design announcement? And I know that there's you know, there's interesting tension as well when we're thinking about kind of, I want to find a different term, like intimate or let's just say nude pictures of kids because teenagers are sending nudes to each other as well. And there's also interesting research that's showing that girls feel a lot more pressure to send nudes than boys do. And so there's kind of, there's always this assumption. I find the debate in the United States like very prudish where there's always this assumption that if there's any nude picture of any young adults, let's say it was non-consensual and it's an instance of abuse, but actually, and especially more so if we look at it through a racialized lens, there's lots of kids that are consensually sending nudes to each other And they're getting, first of all, there's privacy issues where kids are circulating each other's images. We have all sorts of issues around revenge porn that end-to-end encryption doesn't exactly solve, but there's interesting new things with blockchain and deletability and just even Snapchat that, you know, help young adults feel more control over their images. 
But there's also just this kind of pressing question of, you know, what does it mean for young adults to have agency and have boundaries in their digital lives? And do they do young adults, let's say, or teenagers have a right to privacy or not? I think something that I'm understanding more as we're doing more interviews with kids that are 17, 18, 19, there's a lot of surveillance tech that has entered the consumer market in the last few years. A lot of families are on Life360, which is a location sharing app. And it's almost like the way I've understood it is a lot of the emerging kind of tools that are designed for parents and for families are really just cutting parents in on the capabilities of the surveillance state. And that's what I've seen from Meta's parental center as well, is it's basically just like the parents get cut in on all the stuff that Meta already knows about their kids. I really, we don't want to start with younger teenagers. We're going to really target 18-year-olds first to just get this right with all the privacy stuff that we want to do. But over time... Teenagers are always early adopters. If you have a good product, you know, if we don't have 15-year-olds that want to be on germ, we'll have a problem, right? Because that's who are early adopters. But like finding ways to help young people and their families negotiate digital boundaries, advocate for their own privacy and create tools that feel empowering, like I do want to tell mom and dad that I'm dealing with this or I do want to report this. I know one tool I read about on Facebook was your parents see if you report anyone. I'm like, I can't think of anything that would make me want to report something less than it immediately sending an alert, you know, to mom and dad. So it's really a complex um, socio-technical system, if I do say so. And I do also, it just occurs to me that like we might have a lot of privacy concerned people listening to this. So if you do also want to ask a question and not um, speak, you can also tweet at us or in response to our link here. And I'm also happy to read your question. Um, But maybe we can just take a few more minutes here together. I mean, I'm, I'm not a parent, and so I won't even pretend to know, like, what the right answer is. I mean, it's so personal, like, how anybody thinks that they should raise their kids and how much visibility should, they should have into what their kids are doing in order to keep them safe, but also give them the room they need to grow as human beings, um, to which privacy is just an indispensable need for us to actually be people and not stunted little gremlins. Um But like anybody designing a service that will be used by people under the age of 18 is opening themselves up to like a whole bunch of regulatory stuff to have to worry about, like the new like privacy, you know, protection by design uh, for for child users that I mentioned, alongside all the existing laws on the books. Um, And it's something where, you know, if we go back to Apple, when they were talking last year about if a, a child user sent or received nude image that the original plan, which they later dropped, was to notify uh, the parent iCloud account that this had happened, not send the image, because that's illegal. But it didn't seem to have occurred to Apple that not all parents are nice to their children, and that it might be harmful 
to notify parents of what the child was doing in that context, even though for other parents, it might have been a good, useful intervention for them to have a discussion to make sure that their child was, was safe and was not being uh, exploited in some way. Um, but the, the, there are as many approaches to parenting as there are parents. And that is like going to be the absolute you know, hardest thing to do. You're not going to be able to make everybody happy. I'm sure you've realized by now with your, with your service design. Um, and I was happy to see that Apple has dropped their, their plans for, you know, doing scanning the photos that you were uploading to, to iCloud to look for CSAM. And I was happy that they were responsive to civil society and security expert, privacy expert calls for uh, revising how they were going to do messaging safety for children who, uh, their service, their their functionality detects are sending or receiving nude imagery, um, in order to try and emphasize, you know, respect and agency even for people who aren't eighteen yet, um, as as much as possible, um, and to continue respecting like individual like privacy and the sanctity of having some space that is beyond you know, the beyond prying eyes. I think when we talk about the encryption debate, the underlying question that is underpinning basically everybody's stance is, should there be spaces in human society that yes. cannot be ex that cannot be externally policed? I don't mean in internally policed. Like if I want to report that something has happened in a private dynamic, I could do it. Externally policed, whether that's by a parent, whether that's by the state, whether that's by platform or by some trust and safety content moderation tool that's been added on to it should there be places that like that can't be seen into from the outside and your answer to that question may be yes or it may be no but i think it is what is ultimately driving a lot of people's opinions about the encryption debate about like law enforcement access and the fact that we don't know that that's the underlying question that we have already answered for ourselves and are speaking from that point of view is why i think we may talk past each other or often have the same discussion over and over and over again when we talk about the encryption debate because we aren't aware that that is the question that we've answered and that is, you know, in the background of all of these discussions. And that comes to the fore so much when we're talking about uh, parents and their children where, like, you have control over your kid. You are responsible for your kid um, and what that responsibility actually means and how intrusive is it going to be and, you know, what is the right way for them to flourish is just so, so difficult to answer. Um, and so the, you know, the external policing of activity comes up right to the foreground when we're talking about discussions about how to keep kids safe, um, where there is definitely a motivation if you are the Apple or Facebook, you know, of, of the world to say, we think that that decision should be managed, you know, should be left in the hands of parents rather than us having to make the decision mm -hmm. in the same way that a lot of content moderation decisions used to be, oh, who are we to be the judge? Shouldn't actual judges, you know, be the judge of, you know, of a part, whether a particular interaction was, uh, was unlawful or illegal or whether content should come down or not. Um, and that may seem like kind of a, a dodge or like punting on a difficult question um, to try and remove yourself as the service provider, as the intermediary from that question. But it also is, you know, you don't have a full answer without it. Like you're saying, a lot of these questions we're talking about are social, you know, 
issues that aren't susceptible of one technological solution. It doesn't mean that technology doesn't have a role to play in trying to right. mitigate the problem, but it also means that like you can't necessarily totally sidestep your role there. Um, I am glad that there are so many different, at least for messaging, kind of uniquely, that there are like so many goddamn messaging apps to have on your phone. You just have to go with whatever your friends are using. But the fact that there are a lot of competitors in this space that have different privacy and security properties that have, you know, different behaviors, I think is nice from like a market perspective, um, even if it does come back to that question I was talking about earlier of like, do people have accurate mental models of how each individual one works? But the fact that there are options out there that you can decide, like, how much do I want this provider to interpose itself into trust and safety issues for my usage of this platform or how much do I want to just be like a free-for-all where I am just on my own here and that's fine. Um, that is, is, you know, it's, it's I think, better than, than the alternative of, you know, just text messaging. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I want to do another call for questions for you. Maybe last call. We have Alex joined I yeah, my to boss see. and my coworker are on here along with a lot of other privacy experts that I respect but you know they don't have oh amazing nice to meet you all are there other kind of issues on the horizon or also maybe like legislative just legislation I think I should use the noun that's moving forward that you're keeping your eye on Rihanna either in the U.S. or abroad yeah, I mean, I think there are proposals for um, mandating the detection of various types of harmful content that are being brought forth in other countries, like in the EU, in the UK, that will see how encrypted services respond to that. You know, there's news reports that if there is like an obligation imposed by law in the UK to detect and, and mitigate harmful content uh, under under legislation that they've been slowly working through, that WhatsApp has said that they will just stop offering their service in the UK rather mm-hmm. than um, re-engineer to have the ability to detect uh, content, um, which basically means an end-to-end encryption. Um, and so I think the drivers for, right now, knock wood, like in the US, like legislative assaults on encryption are kind of at a lull, but the, there are difficult issues that will come up from the EU, from India, from the UK um, that will affect uh, and require some hard decision making, I think, by uh, end-to-end encrypted services about whether to continue to be available uh, in those markets or whether to offer a, a, essentially a bolderized version of themselves mm. uh, in those markets or not. In which case, if you can break it for one country, then they'll all start wanting one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I feel like for me, another factor that has really shifted or accelerated my sense of the need for end-to-end encryption across services is also just the pandemic and the way that it pushed all of our lives so much more online. You know, you used to, I mean, for me as a teacher, former teacher, I could grab a student after class. I could say something to them. It didn't have to go on the record, right? If you were in a meeting at your office, you could pull someone aside before a meeting, after a meeting. Um, You could have a meeting. You could just sit there. You could all talk off the record if you wanted to, if you needed to. But now every single thing is digital. Every single communication is conveyed over the internet. 
And to me, that has really accelerated my sense. You know, I always, I'm a big believer in people. So I hope that this, I always feel that the silver lining of every bad thing is that more citizens and consumers desire more privacy or desire, you know, the more human humanitarian, human rights aligned thing that's maybe being taken for them from them. And I think, you know, we're seeing waves of labor organizing across the country. And I wouldn't say it's been a foregrounded thing, but I think folks are becoming more aware of their information security and the fact that their bosses, I know there's been we did a, a session on this earlier this fall about all of the surveillance technology that students are experiencing, all the scanning of their rooms that was sometimes ruled, you know, unconstitutional. We're really feeling when we take our work home with us, we're feeling um, our privacy be invaded. And I think we're becoming more aware of the ubiquity of all of these technical systems in our lives. So I hope that citizens, you know, in other countries as well as in the U.S. are keyed into that. Yeah, I, I know we have a couple of questions in the chat, actually. Oh, um, that we please. can go to. So one question is highlight some peer-to-peer -peer social networks that have notable approaches to content moderation. Great question. I think Germ is going to work on trying to build one. Hey, um, hey. I'll admit I'm trying to wean myself off of social networks, including this one on this health site right now. Um, Shout uh, out this health site. <laughs> um, the other question was, can I talk about the balance of internal versus external policing of spaces in the context of the uh, United States uh, versus Carpenter decision? when applied to digital spaces. That's an interesting question. So Carpenter was a Supreme Court case from a couple of years ago that was tackling a couple of difficult questions about like our privacy expectations in public and the privacy expectations that we're entitled to have when we have to hand over data to third parties. In that context, it was uh, cell site location information as you're moving around where the Supreme Court said, you know, if you need, if you're trying to get, it was a week or more's worth of um, cell site location information, historical location information, you need to get a warrant for that. Um, whereas there were arguments in the past that you shouldn't have to get a warrant for that. Um, for like, for these questions, I think end-to-end -end encryption really sort of shifts the balance when we're talking about what can we expect under the doctrine that that Carpenter case was tackling about um, our rights after we uh, surrender our data to third parties, where the idea is usually that like, if you hand over information to a third party, you run the risk, you accept the risk that they will turn around and hand that information off uh, to somebody else, such as law enforcement, for example. Um, I think that being able to add encryption so that that intermediary, whoever we are handing off our third our, our information to, that third party, um, it, it shifts I think it'll shift in interesting ways what the legal analysis will need to be about whether we're giving up any reasonable expectation of privacy in that information at all if something is also encrypted in a way that that third party can't see it at all. Um, I don't know that this has come up yet so much in any in any legal challenges um, in the Fourth Amendment context, but I think we'll start to see it uh, coming up because it is a fundamental 
shift to the legal rationale for saying you can't possibly expect that the data you gave to a third party would be private. Now I can. And it would be reasonable for me to expect that if uh, if uh, the third party in question has represented to me that my information uh, is secure and that not even they can see it, much less hand it off uh, to law enforcement. So I'll be fascinated to see how encryption starts to affect courts' legal analyses um, if we start to see Fourth Amendment challenges um, where the government tries to argue, well, you were giving it to some intermediary and therefore you have lesser uh, privacy expectations in that data. I also want to loop back to the question about peer-to-peer social networks with notable approaches to content moderation. You know, I feel that that is really a whole Um, I know there are several, you know, peer-to-peer frameworks that are doing end-to-end encrypted messaging. Um, Scuttlebutt comes up a lot, Matrix. But I think content moderation is a different story. And it's a different, maybe that, you know, maybe you were really asking more about content moderation to the person that asked that question. But something that I've just observed in the landscape and that we're really trying to remedy at Germ and this is more of a kind of cultural judgment, is that a lot of the folks that are very concerned about end-to-end encryption are not that concerned about privacy moderation. There's a lot more of an individualism and a sense of, we're going to give you these powers for full privacy tools, but then, you know, good luck with that. Um, And a lot of content moderation that's more robust happens in more... Well, it kind of in tiers, right? There's a sort of centralized level of terms of service from the platform, but then there's often subsidiary, you know, groups that are self-moderating, but they are supposed to be following, you know, the hierarchy at the top. It's been interesting watching the Twitter exodus to Mastodon and folks kind of buck up against, you know, the not nice side of Federation, which is that you might not like all the content moderation that's being done by random groups of peers, right? The, the Twitter content mod team and trust and safety team like evolved over a decade and a half of responding and balancing different concerns. Um, so I think there's a lot of space there to do privacy and trust and safety better together. Yeah, and I think that, you know, one of the things that always just haunts me about content moderation at scale is if we are going to say, you know, automated tooling is never going to a hundred percent be able to address abuse in online spaces, how much just gets devolved onto users, onto volunteers to, you know, clean up their own communities or a handful of people who might be, uh, you know, the mods for, for a particular community and just take that role on probably uncompensated or at best, you know, hordes of thousands of underpaid traumatized people in the Philippines or whatever, who do content moderation, um, on, under contract to various services, Accenture or whoever, mm-hmm. um, for these services. And I just don't know exactly how to get ourselves out of that. If, you know, if, if, if men were angels, no government would be necessary, as it says in the Federalist Papers. If men were angels, no content moderation teams would be necessary. <laughs> um, Iconic. And, 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 you know, uh, we see that there's a love of putting forth how great and effective, like, you know, AI like, is, but it has to be trained by humans. 
And, and I don't know how to fix this problem or whether this is going to be an unavoidable feature of, of content moderation forever is that there will just always be some amount of unpaid or underpaid human beings having to deal with and process like the worst of the worst that their own users can throw at them. Maybe teaching Sand how to think was a mistake. I don't know. I do really feel optimistic about at least the potential of building new systems. I know one of the resonances of our name germ is about just cultivating new ways of doing things, cultivating new cultures, and really taking a proactive rather than a reactive approach to culture building. I think we'll see over time as a company and as a platform, you know, what that really looks like for us. And I know that it's very informed by all the years that I spent building safe cultures inside of classrooms. And that was a very micro environment. And now we're really trying to scale that with a platform. But I am a strong believer that you can teach people to behave in respectful ways and you can set boundaries and you can have accountability. And it's not about, you know, excluding people. It's about setting boundaries around what kind of behavior is okay. You know, it is a little bit of that parenting energy of like privacy is a right that has responsibilities attached And I don't think it's responsible to build, you know, privacy preserving platforms that don't think proactively about harassment and trust and safety, because of course, they're going to be taken advantage of, right? Like, we have to think proactively about trust and safety, we have to think about keeping each other safe. We have to think about society and how we come together and not just how we protect ourselves when we're apart or separated. Yeah, I think the best writing that I have personally read that has ever been done about these questions is Sarah Jong's The Internet of Garbage, which came out like seven years ago. And I just desperately wish she would issue a version 2.0 because she has some, just some great examples in there about how certain communities have managed to actually build healthy, you know, respectful, um, you know, boundary setting and enforcing communities um, in, you know, particular online gaming spaces or whatever. Um, and it's such an interesting template for how this, you know, could potentially be done. Um, and, you know, you, you mentioned, like, you're going to build this in from the start. Like, definitely, like, your users will find ways to do terrible things that you hadn't uh, uh, anticipated. But at least, you know, if you're trying from the start, like, we've, you don't have to speed run known issues that people who have worked in this space for, you know, some people for decades Uh, could tell you are coming from a mile away. Yeah, and we have a comment on that um, in our thread. In my opinion, if we understand this as a societal issue, it's too late if you wait to do anything until there's content to moderate. I think that's exactly right. I mean, one of the examples that I watched and we watched as a team kind of with horror, you know, when we were just starting to talk about germ was... Clubhouse and how they scaled so fast, they had no trust and safety features, like not one reporting tool anywhere. And they had a gigantic ballistic, you know, anti-Semitism and misogyny problem before they even introduced these tools. So it's really, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. but also as an intersectional feminist, as someone trained in universal design, like 
I'm not a techno optimist. We have to be realistic about the world that we live in. And actually, if we're realistic and we anticipate the same harms that always happen in our society again and again, they're very studyable. They're very documented. By facing that stuff and being realistic and proactive, that's how we can make spaces that are safer and more inclusive for everybody. I think that is really you know, an ideological debate point, right? Because they're trying to tell us that we can't talk about race, we can't talk about gender, naming those things is oppressive. And of course, we have to insist very loudly that it's only by talking about these realities and these inequities that we can prevent them and mitigate them. Yeah, I mean, it's a test, Clubhouse is a testimony to the importance of diverse teams and diverse funding sources, because and the point has been made, plenty of times that people who have never felt unsafe a day in their entire lives have no reason to ever have it occur to, to them in their gigantic bald heads that anybody else might potentially not have the same experience that they do as they move through the world online and off. And so to have, uh, you know, you in particular, but, you know, other apps that are built by other and funded by other than, you know, non like non-jewish cis white guys is is very important to uh building a a future that is both you know private and safe and respectful here here i feel like that's a good place to wind down i want to do a couple last little dunking on vcs yeah dunk um announcements and comments i also have mentioned our discord please join our discord we have lots of smart folks and just motivated world changers we have a really big founder community in our discord that's getting bigger and bigger so many wonderful smart people as well as just a bunch of makers we have a big designer channel in there a bunch of cooks a bunch of hardware engineers and industrial designers um and just kind of like-minded builders i think that are really putting their money where their mouth is in terms of trying to build you know a world that's safer for all of us Um, We also do a voice chat in there on Friday afternoons. You can chat with us again in a more private environment that will not be recorded. Rihanna, I'm just like really happy to have you here. You're so smart and so informed. And I just always remember how you shot me down when I first emailed you to talk about my startup. And now here we are. So thank you for joining us tonight. (laughs) I'm not too proud to admit and I sometimes am wrong. Um, and I was, I was glad that we eventually corrected that initial, uh, that initial mess up. I love it. Um, it makes a good story that I'll be telling forever. So sorry about that for you. But thank you, everyone. Shout out Brett. He usually pops in. He's my co-founder. He's been having some technical issues tonight. Thank you for everyone listening. Um, I'm on Twitter also as Tessa La Professa, so follow me too because I'm usually logged in as that. But I hope I'll see some of you guys in our Discord community. And thank you again, Rihanna, for an always super informative and energizing conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Good night, everyone.